there are some who say he is only a myth. Soon they will discover the Phantom is real. Well, pops up from the Aurora Cold Libation, let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him, what you got? He said, I'll start off with some talking and some moody clips of popcorn, fighting fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Varietycast. I'm your host, Jason. Today I've got a great show for you. I've got an awesome interview with, with a, a new game creator. It's fresh on the scene, lots of great ideas, very wise for his years. Um, I, I say that like, like, like he's a kid. He's <laughs> not an old man like me, but he's, he's definitely not, uh, you know, like wet behind the ears, 18-year-old or anything. But, um, but yeah, great interview definitely check that out. In fact, I have the interview up first because I want people, if, if they don't stay for the whole show, I want you to hear the interview. It, it's really great. After the interview, we have some gaming recaps and unboxing. And because, you know, June 4th, we're going to reflect back on an American tale. So let's get to that interview. I have a special treat for everybody. I have James Schrall here. From and now I feel I just mispronounced your name. From Subclass Act Podcast, who's put out a couple publications. So we're going to talk about his Novas and Nebulae RPG, and we'll also lightly touch on the Reef Runners campaign setting. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. Did, how bad did I butcher your last name there? No, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Oh, okay. Troll. Yeah, it's there weird. We S and R. They don't go together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind my dogs in the background. Oh, that's okay. So, Mine's here too. She'll probably be snoring. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I was gonna. We, we've been. I've been talking about sci-fi and sci-fantasy games on my podcast the last few episodes, and I was gonna do a review of your game anyway, and then I thought, well, why not reach out and get you on the show? So, yeah, more fun that way. <laughs> definitely. So everybody, you, you should be listening to James's podcast. He does an actual play podcast, and he actually lets the dice decide what's happening in his podcast, which is really great. And he's really open with the mechanics, and he tries different, like the AI mechanics. He does the different, you, you know, whether he's using Ray Otis's Oracle system or he's using the... Um, yeah. What, what are some other the AI mechanics you've used, James? Yeah, I think the first one I used was Mythic, um, and I've used that one a bunch. Uh, I've got the book of that. Uh, I think there's also Parts Per Million has a bunch of them, uh, and I think I've used his OSR solo, which is mm -hmm. good, too. Actually, I think that works for more than just OSR. It's, it's, that one's nice, too, because like Ray Otis's, it fits in a small size, so you can have an index card of all the possibilities. Um, right. I think I've, oh, man, let's say, oh, uh, Motif. That's another different one that's kind of fun. Um, it doesn't have the generative tables like Mythic, but it does have a, a fun thing where you roll you roll three dice and each of them means something different. So I usually have a red, green, and a blue for that one. And it kind of tells you yes or no, what degree, and then 
something else. That third one is always whatever, whichever flavor. So if you're doing something like Call of Cthulhu, there's some chaos mechanic ones. Um, for me, I usually just use it for uh, how favorable is the outcome to the party. Excellent. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. Okay. Well, I, I've really enjoyed your podcast. So I look forward to this, Thanks. you know, the second season coming up and the and your little interlude you're going to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it was started out cause I, I started out kind of, uh, I actually started out in the hobby this past August. Um, I had played a one, one shot of fifth edition with my wife uh, a couple years ago, a friend of mine had let it and then I couldn't find people for a while. Um, and we started out playing two games, uh, two different games at the same time. One of them was fifth edition, which is still going. And the other one, uh, was Star Wars Edge of the Empire, which went for a little bit. It didn't really, mean mainly due to scheduling, didn't really take. And so it kind of moved into um, Monster of the Week for a while. Um, but so I wanted from the beginning to get into doing an actual play because uh, I think just like everybody else who does actual plays, because I was listening to the Adventure Zone. Um, and even though I knew I wouldn't do anything as good as that, it sounded fun anyway. Um, but then, you know, COVID and all kinds of stuff, and I couldn't find anybody to do that. And I was like, well, that's a bummer. I can't do it until I found two things. One was um, Me, Myself, and Die, which is like just the best YouTube content out there. Uh, Trevor Duvall does a really amazing job. And then, so I found that and I was like, oh, well, he plays this by himself and that's cool. And then uh, Tale of the Manticore is another actual play. Um, and I started listening to that. Uh, he does a little bit different style than me, but his he also lets the dice decide whatever. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. There's You can do this thing by yourself. So um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fun to do that. No, it's great. And it's great to see somebody that's pretty new to the hobby and you just jumped in both feet. You know, you've got, you've got actual play podcast. You've got two products out there published, which people can pick up on either drive through or on itch. And I'll have links for all that in the show notes, but yeah, I, and I assume you have no, no desire to slow down at this point. Not really. I, it was funny because I, I thought, cause I'm a software engineer during the day and uh, I thought I would want to do more video game stuff. And I still, I still kind of want to mess with that a bit. That's a lot of work. I thought the programming would be the fun part. Uh, and the game design would take a back seat until I started doing some of this stuff. I, I saw some other people making really cool things and I was like, Oh, okay, this is pretty cool. And I started engaging with the more of the, the game development side. And that's just been, that's just been super fun. Um, so I've just been consuming just all kinds of, I guess I do this with everything. I studied music in school and I do this with music too. I did this for music for a while. I just consume all the, all the media. I did this when I got into software. Um, yeah, it just, uh, I don't know. There's just something about it and it's, it's kind of wild the way it's taken off. I, you know, um, got my wife into it. She mainly just agreed to start playing games, uh, because I really needed people really badly. Uh, but now we've got a core group of us that, that play games. I got some of my coworkers to, um, play some of these games. We play, uh, We've been playing a lunch game for a while, uh, about every Wednesday or so for an hour. We played that for a while using Mythic and, and Dungeon World for a while without a GM. Um, and then so really, I think it was when I saw uh, a couple things. When I saw Offworlders and a lot of the stuff people were doing with Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, but the one that really, even though I bounced off of it the first time I looked at it, because it's such a such a thing to consume, uh, is Troika. When I saw Troika and all the cool stuff people were doing with that, um, I saw that and then specifically the powered by the apocalypse one, when I saw Offworlders, um, I, I think that's Chris Wolf who did that. Um, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. I could maybe, I could maybe make something smaller like this. Um, and then really when I saw Nate Treem's Highland Paranormal Society stuff, especially Tunnel Goons and, uh, in light of a ghost star, 
I support him on Patreon now. Um, he just has such cool stuff, but it's all bite-sized enough that I was like, oh, I could maybe try doing this. So I got Affinity Publisher and um, started to work on, on hacking on some stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and your stuff looks really good. But, you know, both of your, your products and, and you're nice enough to put it out. So like a lot of publisher, a lot of these games now, you know, he's got it set up where it's, it's almost like that pamphlet kind of style game. But he has, you can you can download either the pamphlet or a single page version, which is really nice, you know, depending how people want to print it out. So so that's great that you give people the option to to do that. Yeah, I always have these ambitions of printing out the spreads. Um, I have no idea really how that works, but fortunately it does it for me. But um, and so I don't. Yeah, I'm still learning that stuff. So I actually have to, like, do the Microsoft print to print to PDF to get the single pages. Um, but my printer can only print out the single pages. So I, I think I, I think I finally stuck it in my three ring binder so I can flip through it. Um, mm-hmm. but I've got like random crappy printed out stapled versions in various places. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I, um, and the, you know, the single pages are much easier on the, um, the tablet too. And I, I usually try, I like the dead tree versions of stuff. So I've got all, all the books. So anything that I really, really like graduates to the paper copy, um, but sometimes it's just convenient to have the, uh, the iPad and mainly, you know, for my friends, um, like my work colleagues, who I didn't want them to have to buy something. I figured I could just send them the, the PDF of the single pages and they could fl- uh, flip through stuff how they, however they need. Definitely. Definitely. And, and, and you know, e- even though these aren't huge, the, you know, the quality, the, the layout's really nice. You, you know, you, we don't really have any art in there other than the covers, which is fine because of the mm-hmm. size of the products, you know, any art would really just eat up the space. Now, because I'm, you know, I try to be be fair and, and give my listeners the fair thing. We, we did find two typos in your product, but you're going <laughs> to yes. fix those, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, uh, I've had a couple of people catch this. First was because um, there's there's been a couple iterations. The first time that people really played it, I hadn't even gotten to play it yet. Um, or play tested. There were some people on. Uh, I think it's the NSR Discord, so like New School. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the uh, Into the Odd, Electric Bastion Land, Cairn. There's a lot of that kind of stuff on there. Um, somebody wanted to play test, uh, play test it on there. That's what kind of we discovered that the numbers were needed tweaked a little bit because just you know the only thing about two D six game is just that plus one makes just such a big difference at the end of that bell curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we had to tweak that. And so there's, they caught some spelling mistakes. You fo- found a couple, uh, with the new version. So, um, unfortunately it's really easy to really easy to publish this stuff out and get the updates out there now. So, oh, oh yeah, definitely. And, and, and I'm just poking phone at, fun at oh, James, yeah. folks. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, we have a, you know, great little PDF game here and it's free. It, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. Unlike a lot of these, you know, I've given some big publishers a hard time recently because we have these products that they, they print, you know, they send out whether they're print books or PDFs that you're paying big bucks for. Yeah, And especially with print books these days, a lot of these Kickstarter games, you, you know, you get the print book and it's, it's like a beta copy yeah. and there are tons, tons of errata, you know, you have pages and pages of errata in there and it's, it's horrible. So yeah, yeah I, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I think one of the things I liked about the DIY scene, and that's kind of one of, I wanted to get into that is um, like, I've, I've read, um, I think uh, Spencer uh, free thralls. Um, okay. uh, he has Pura, which I, I didn't pay attention to as much, um, even though it's good. It just, it's um, I didn't pay attention to it first because I'm not quite as into the, the free Kriegspiel kind of the FKR kind of scene, but I, his more recent uh, Vigal wood, I think is how you say their Vagal wood um, is kind of his, uh, take on that with, but with some other flavor stuff in it. I was just, I just love all this, the smaller things that people publish. There were, 
Uh, there was a huge Troika fest and people made some really cool stuff for Troika. I think there was one for Mouse Ritter on itch recently, which Mouse Ritter is also deeply cool. And people were making like a filling out hexes for a big, I guess, West marches kind of thing for Mouse Ritter. Um, so I just love that, that scene. And so, I, you know, not a professional game developer or anything like that. So I figured put it out for free and then I'll have the game, the game will always be free. And then any supplements I have for it will still be free, but it'll just have the pay, pay what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of tag on it. I didn't even want to do that for the first one. Cause it was my first one. And it, uh, honestly, it was also cause I was too lazy to set up the uh, PayPal stuff at the beginning. Uh, then it ended up being really easy, but <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's talk about these products for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. the Nova's Nebula is a sci-fi game and you could do it for sci-fi or science fantasy. You, get, you give rules to do both. Um, you give like a, f- basically kind of like a, you know, scratch serial numbers off version of the forest people can use. Yeah. If, if they want to, but it, it's actually really neat. It's, it's just a pretty basic game, but you have a couple things in here and, and I'm not, because it's free and because it's all six page, well, with the spreads, it's all six pages long. I, I don't want to break down all the rules and everything for everybody because they, they, they need to go out and download it, read it for themselves. But, but you have some really neat mechanics in here. You have a push your luck mechanic, which is mm-hmm. great. And, and for combat, you have a cover mechanic or a, a suppressifier effectively mechanic. That, that works really good and, and it's well I, I so full disclosure i haven't played the game but reading it, it looks like it would work really well for you know pinning down targets but it's super simple it's so much easier than suppression fire in a lot of these other games what what, what kind of inspired you or why did you want to include that kind of mechanic yeah i mean it all started really from the like the top of the game really was just i was looking for sci-fi rules that i could run i think i hadn't found off-worlders yet um i was looking through Classic Traveler, which I, I have a copy of now, um, you know, Edge of the Empire. And there's a lot of these other really good games, really good systems, but there's some kind of games that I wanted to run. It was more along the Firefly angle and I just didn't find the right one. Um, and being so new, it's easier for me to start with something rules light, especially because I it was in the, you know, going to fill up, fill up some one shots. One thing I noticed though, is because we're all new, or at least my group, we're all new to um, tabletop games as we came from playing video games. And so the temptation is really strong to just, play it like a like a jrpg or pokemon or something and just like stand there okay i attack you attack i attack you attack and the i was like well is there a way i can one you know force the players to interact with the environment more and two i may not even fill in those details so i really need them to ask like okay what else is in the room is there something behind this what's up here in the in the ceiling and the roof you know to kind of get them to interact with that um and i don't use like i'm really lazy i don't know how to use like grids or miniatures or anything on roll 20. So the most I draw some, you know, I have foundry now, but I still only draw like boxes, um, mostly do theater of the mind kind of stuff. Um, just because it's the only thing I really know how to do. And so how do I get them more immersed in the environment? And one of them was, well, what if, um, what if when they attack, as long as they hit, even if they don't do damage because of armor, as long as they hit, the other enemy is going to be pinned down. And all that means is they can't attack directly. They have to interact with the environment. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of the basic mechanic is there's, there's two ways of doing damage and, and it started from two reasons. One, get them to interact with the environment. The other one was, um, I wanted the option to have a lot of these games have one role resolutions for multiple things. Um, and that can be fun. And sometimes that's not the right thing. So I have two rules and I think I've used them both. Um, so the, the main one is that you roll to attack and this is kind of borrowed from tunnel goons in a way where it's kind of the difference between how well you do and, um, the, whatever you're rolling against kind of determines the degree of success. So, um, when you roll, you, you take the, 
the role minus whatever your stat is. So if it's melee, it's strength, it's, it's agility, if it's ranged, which is fairly standard. And then you, you know, subtract whatever the enemy is armor because armor just removes from uh, damage. And that's what, what you're left with is how much damage you do. Um, so th what that means is that th if you use that method, it can also mean that you hit, but the enemy has really good armor and that's, it would be a bummer to constantly have, you're hitting, you're hitting them, but they're not, it's not doing anything. But because it's sci-fi, you want a little bit more, not necessarily realism per se, but you want more grit to it. So I wanted like, well, somebody's still shooting at you and you're still getting hit. Even if you're wearing tough armor, you're not going to just stand there. So um, I still want to give them something, some sort of edge for taking the initiative. Um, so, you know, it, no matter what, if you hit that, you know, you, you're suppressed. There, the other way is you can just roll damage. You can roll to hit and roll damage separately, which actually is much more lethal. That's the other thing is if it's not lethal enough for you, if you do the separate roll, that's much more lethal. You'll you'll have people dying all over the place. Um, right, but this is great with a suppressifier because you can simulate where somebody's pinned down and then they have to, you know, they have to shoot the ch chandelier to drop yeah. down on top of the guy or something like that. Exactly, and, and the idea is like, I, I don't always love, you know, just tons of rules for all kinds of situations just because it's just too much for me to keep them ahead. I don't think that's bad. There's a lot of people, like one of the people who plays in the game, I play in a, finally a player, even though I'm forever a GM, uh, I play in a Star Trek uh, Adventures game and um, one of the other, one of my other friends who's uh, playing that with me is much more into, he got into RPGs from the, the tabletop miniature side. And so he likes the crunch. He likes that. I've never played those. I could never afford the Warhammer stuff. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh growing up but um so we kind of you know there's kind of a way to meet in the middle and, and i think this is kind of one of those ways is to get people to try anything because that's one of the things i love about rpgs versus video games like you can just try anything as long as it kind of makes sense um and i remember reading you know the classic traveler at the at the beginning it talks about it being much more conversational of a game uh which i really like so that's the kind of thing is you know if i hadn't planned on having a big you know thing in the ceiling and the player's like oh is there like a big chandelier like well you know, it's a supply room, so maybe there's not a big chandelier, but, you know, maybe there's a uh, a suspended, like, you know, an engine. Maybe there's, like, an engine block that's suspended mm -hmm. up there or something, or a drive a drive section suspended up there. Like, well, can I try to shoot it down? Well, you know, maybe they have conventional weapons. Like, sure, it's going to be hard. Um, or, um, you know, if you have a laser weapon, maybe, uh, oh, yeah, I can, I can shoot it down and have it land on top of them. That's a really cool, really cool way. Um, and I think it's because... I've been doing a lot of the reading on, uh, you know, rules, not rulings, the, uh, was it the, um, what's it called? The Principia Apocrypha and uh -huh. uh, Matt Finch's uh, primer. And I really like the rulings over rules, but it's hard, I think, sometimes to, for newer people to just jump straight into that, unless right. you get them interacting with the environment in that way. And so if you literally cannot shoot back at the other person, well, I still want to do something on my turn. What can I do? Like, look around for something else. Yeah, well, and you know, great example. Last night, Arlen Walker from Live from Pelham's Wasteland was running a game of Temples and Tombs, I think think is what it's called, which is, I, I don't think it's out yet, but it, it was kickstarted. It's to run like Indiana Jones Adventures, mm -hmm. is effectively way it's run Pulp Adventures. And, and it kind of used the Mutant Year Zero engine. But we, so it, we ended up, we had, we just recovered this artifact from a, from a tomb. We come out, of course, there are Nazis out there to you know, because Nazis are the bad guys and all of this. Of course, yeah. All this. But, but anyway, they, they're out there and they have this gunpoint, you know, holding us, what are we going to do? And um, I said, well, my character's going to, you know, he's a journalist. He, he's going to pull his flash bulb out for his camera and, and, and flash it to blind him so we can try to duck away. Yeah. And, you, you know, a lot of games aren't going to have rules for that. But, mm -hmm. you, you know, it goes that rulings, not rules thing where, you know, okay, we'll do your, um, you know, sleight of hand kind of thing to to see if you can pull it off. And 
you know so yeah, yeah having I, that rpgs let you do that you know you know yeah i love that i think um you know reading that stuff i you know i uh, rapidly consume all of Ben Milton's questing beasts uh, stuff on YouTube. And he kind of, you know, explained it in a way that made sense to me too, that just um, like a lot of other people have explained it too, just that, you know, if the players do something clever, um, they may not even have to roll for it. If it's clever, um, if it makes sense, right. If there's an interesting chance of failure, you still make them roll for it. Um, and you can adjudicate it. However. So the way I do that too, is instead of giving bonuses, you know, I'm very liberal in the game when I run it with advantage and disadvantage. Um, mm-hmm. So 3d6 versus 2d6, it's not as, um, it's not as big of a chance difference as if you only used one die, like a d20 and you have that, but it still, it still pushes a little bit and feels good for them, uh, to have that. So if they do something clever, they may not need to roll at all. Um, if, and I love that because there's nothing, um, there's nothing cooler than seeing, you know, somebody be super excited that like, Oh yeah, they come up with this clever thing. Cause that's what people remember afterwards. And so I want to incentivize that as much as possible. Um, you know, like, oh yeah, it was, this is crazy. There was the people at Inbush just, how did we ever survive? How did we ever do this? Um, and somebody comes up with something clever as opposed to like, you know, um, I guess that, you know, it's the, it's the player being clever versus the character being clever. Um, right. And I think that's really cool because it's cool to, to, to role play and be in the character, but like when a player does something clever, I don't know, it's, it's cool. They love it. And then I love it. So Oh, yeah, well, yeah, and, and 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 I've heard that called the rule of cool before. Yeah, where, where you know if something's neat, then you you let it happen. You know, and, and if they fail the roll, maybe you still let it happen. But you know, it's that um, six or fail forward thing where you, mm-hmm. you you know they might have a disadvantage. Maybe they'll twist their ankle, or maybe they're you know they're a little bit just on your heels or something. But but you get you still give them a you, you know still give them a win for coming up with that great idea. Yeah, yeah, and it could still be fun, you know, if you're like, you fail against all odds, you have this really clever plan, you set it up, and like, against all odds, you still fail. Just the idea that you've come up with something that off the wall is fun, because then people remember that, like, oh, I remember, I was just, I was just about to do this, and then, you know, this other thing happened, like, that can be fun, too. And that's a big thing, I think, is to make, um, I think the biggest thing that I want is to make failure as fun as succeeding, because I mean, if you're rolling, especially with some of these, some of the games like this one, especially if you're, if you're having to roll for it, which is already bad for your chances, um, you're going to fail more like statistically, you're going to fail more than you succeed. So it still needs to be fun. Um, I think one of the ones that does this the best for me is just, uh, when I've run one shots of Troika, just because Troika is so off the wall. Although I think, um, it, I think that can turn people off. I don't think people realize like you can actually just play, you can just make backgrounds that aren't as off the wall or play, you know, play in a, in a way, Troika in a way that's not as off the wall. And you could, you could play a standard adventure, but what's, what's fun is the, uh, the fumble tables are just as fun as, uh, as anything else. So like if somebody casts a spell and they fumble it real bad, uh, that can be just as fun because, you know, they could turn into a deck or something. It's just this weird it doesn't always have to be that off the wall, but like anytime you can make failure interesting, um, cause then it doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, like then it doesn't matter what the players do. They're going to have a good time as long as they're engaging with it. So as opposed oh. to just like swing and miss and swing and miss. And like, that's super lame. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. And that's one of the reasons that things like, you, you know, dungeon crawl classics is great. Mm-hmm. And even Rollmaster back in the day, which yes, it's a real crunchy system, but the critical and failure tables in that were great. And, and so those games, you know, that, you know, people look forward to when you're all critical or failure just because they, they want those crazy results, you, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it adds that flavor in the game. So now I, I, so obviously I haven't played um, this yet, but I, I really like, it and I do plan to get this to the table. I, 
I, I think there's a lot here that that'll work well. I I think you could def- and to go back to the conversation I've been having on my podcast, I, I think you could use these this rule set without a doubt to do either science fiction or science fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I mean, I, I kind of wanted it to be flexible that way. So like the impulse powers are in there, um, which is very serial numbers filed off um, because, it, you know, I wanted to be able to run. Really, I wanted to be able to use it for a few things. One, I really wanted to run something like Firefly, um, which is kind of I, I've gotten a couple adventures that I run with it. First was with my home group. We had um, a couple one shots where somebody was missing. So we played, you know, one where they have to, you know, it's kind of a heist. You got to get in, get the data for your patron, get out. Um, you know, other people come, there's like, you're there. It's kind of in the desert. If they'd water too far, big worms come out of the sand and all that thing. The next, uh, the next one I ran for that was much more, um, was actually for my, my work group. We had our kind of our team started playing games and they wanted to play my game. So they played that one and I thought it was going to be all over. And then they're like, Oh, well actually I was hoping to play the same characters and play next time. Okay. So the next adventure, um, it was, you know, there's a, a, a ship that was supposed to be more mass effecty. There's uh, you know, very episodic. There's a ship here. It's super, super old. Your computer says, um, it's probably worth a lot of money. And it turns out that there's like a, a cult of people living on there that have been on there for probably generations. They don't remember how it works. Um, so they still had fun with that. They wanted to continue playing. Next one's going to be very like aliens invading. So I wanted it to be flexible, to be episodic. Those were more Firefly Mass Effect, but also um, Edge of the Empire was really fun. And we'll hopefully play that again sometime. I, there are some dice mechanics I like about that, but I also wanted to be able to get um, my brother-in-law was one of the people who played that. I wanted to be able to get his wife to play a game so we could have more people. Um, but she's never played before. And so I figured, okay, well, she'll probably play Star Wars. Like she likes Star Wars. So can I get her to do something simpler so we, she can just try it out without having to like feel like she needs to learn all of this, all of this stuff. Like just get straight to the table. Um, don't learn any rules. And I'll tell you just like as it comes up, you'll like learn nothing ahead of time. So I, I wanted it to be able to play Star Wars and Firefly and Star Trek and whatever. So it needed to be flexible. Um, okay. I've actually never used the impulse rules yet because nobody's wanted to play it so far with the uh, more science fantasy side, mm-hmm. which is kind of a bummer because I like I'm pretty stoked in those mechanics, but I have no idea how they work out in practice. <laughs> well, they look like so. The one thing that's interesting with with them is instead of doing like a dark side or doing a a corruption kind of mechanic with it, what what you do is what these rules do is basically weakens the character to use those abilities. And, and so they have to, if, if they keep using, they're going to have to rest to regain their energy, you know, to regain their. Yeah. And so, as much as I love like the spell slots kind of thing, like that doesn't really work um, for all games and it wouldn't work for science, uh, science fantasy. I don't think uh-huh. either. So I wanted to be able to like, yeah, in, in star Wars, they use the force all the time, but it's got to take some sort of a drain on them. So uh, I think I actually, borrowed this from troika and warlock which is they're both mm-hmm. fighting fantasy style because you have to spend your stamina to cast the spells which is super cool because now you're thinking like okay i'm going to do this thing it's going to be a big deal but is it worth it like do i have it's always going to be that risk reward which is fun um or at least it seems like my players find that kind of trade-off fun and so that's that's kind of the idea you can keep doing as much as you want but you're going to weaken yourself by doing it because it literally it saps one from each of your stat to do it you're just you're expending kind of this this life force of yours to do it right um yeah it i think that's just more of an interesting trade-off the other the other big thing about it was it comes with just more force kind of style things pushing pulling very very basic things like that but the one of the big things i wanted to try because i the whole game is like almost all stolen from various places the pin down thing is probably the only thing i think that i haven't stolen from somewhere um, but one of the big things is I've been re- really enjoying reading, like I have the PDF of Electric Bastion Land, um, Cairn, 
um, which is a hack of Into the Odd. And mm-hmm. what I like about a lot of those, Troika, um, some of the others, they have this very much this implied setting. There's no like extra setting material they read. You just pick it up from the tables or whatever else. Um, so the the nice thing about this is, you know, if, if somebody wants, okay, I, I, I like this, but I want the powers to be different. Maybe I want them to be more like, not Vancean in the D&D sense, but like literally Jack Vance, like, you know, okay, sure. Like just make a new table. Right. And then that's it. That's all you have to do is really just make a new table of weirder stuff. Um, okay. Well, I like this, but I really want to do um, more of like a, a cyberpunk or like transhuman thing where they have like built in gear that does this. So like, okay. Yeah. It just, it still saps their energy because it's, it's built into them, you know, just roll up and make a different table of effects, you know, that you can use. Right. This would work for like psionics, you know, mm-hmm. pr- pretty much straight across. Just change the name here and there. No, yeah. it's great. And, and, you know, you talk about the implied setting for just from reading the rules. That's something that, you know, for my OSR listeners, they're like, oh, they're just talking about new games. But <laughs> the but you go back to the oldest versions of D&D and it was the same thing. It was an implied setting. I mean, mm-hmm. not not the, you, you know, your your published setting books, but the original game, there was an implied setting there. That was kind of like this, you know, post-apocalypse or post, mind you, in the future, but but it was a really interesting setting. Mm-hmm. You, you get from that, but it wasn't spelled out. You know, you didn't have the kingdom of this did that and right. the layout, you know, you, you got to plug all that in. Yeah, so. I think that's, you know, that's why some people prefer, like, I think, was it not, uh, I always get the names mixed up. Is it Delving Deeper? Mm-hmm. I think it's Delving Deeper. Versus like yep. white box, um, right. fantastic medial adventure game, you know, the quirky way that stuff is written in delving deeper, which is, I guess, closer to the original text. Um, you know, it implies more stuff. Right. So, which is, so if you want that, that's, you know, that flavor is great. Um, whereas, uh, white box is more of like, Hey, make this, whatever. It's still got right. the implied setting of the monster manual sort of, but it doesn't have as quirky of the, you know, the other stuff in it. That can be some of the most fun. I, um, I watched a really good interview with, um, the creator of Troika and he, like, he's, he's, will never tell you how the stuff is supposed to work together. He says, I have a very specific way. Like, yes, the wall works this way. The abyss works this way, but he's not going to tell you because the whole idea is that you at your table, like, oh, that's a weird thing. Like what, you know, the one, the, uh, I think it's the monkey monger sits on the wall and it mentions the wall in the abyss. And that's not mentioned in a bunch of other places. So it's like, what's this wall? And so that's kind of the fun thing is like, okay, what, you know, what does that mean? So I figure I start with like a blank slate, mainly with Nova's Nebula. It doesn't have a ton of implied setting so that you add, the idea is that, um, you know, make your own tables of, of that stuff for your setting. So if you want it to be Firefly, instead of some of those items, replace some of them with like more Western kind of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. uh, you want to play something that's more like the expanse. Most of the gear can stay the same, but like add, you know, maybe add something where like, um, you know, one, one thing on there has to do with like protomolecule or something, you know, just add, you know, it starts out blank and then, you know, add custom tables for things, which is much easier if you have a, a template to start, like, here's, here's kind of how a table looks like. Now you can have your own, uh, your own table. Oh, definitely. And sometimes, you know, that implied settings better than what the creator comes up with anyway. Yeah, you know, we we've seen this with with films and all. Well, we look at like Twin Peaks, and I don't know. You're 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 a little bit younger than I am, but but like Twin Peaks, there are all these fan theories of how everything works for this TV show that was you know this famous TV mm-hmm. show. And then when David Lynch came back and did his third season, you know, it, it was almost like a you know middle finger to the audience, like you want me to tell you what it's how it's going to happen. I'm going to show you, and it's not what anybody expected or, or wanted in a lot of ways. So it's 
Yeah. yeah it's kind of like the, it, you really want to show not tell. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I guess what they say for, for film and stuff. So I think it's the same with games and it's kind of a bummer when it tells you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm intimidated by that too. So like, and I, I've only done really homebrew stuff. So I th- that was one of the reasons why edge of the empire as good of a game as it is, was hard for me to run as my first game. Um, which is why I think it was easier for monster of the week because it was dumped me straight into monster of the week dumps you straight into like, okay, write down six steps, but otherwise just come up with a town, come up with this. This is yours now. Whereas mm-hmm. with star Wars, like I didn't know how to handle an actual setting where it's like, okay, we all know star Wars. Like, I don't want to screw it up. Um, and it turns out like, who cares? Because like most right. of those places are not in, in anyways. But you know, when I was first starting out, that was really intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. And so fifth edition as well, like I didn't have any setting material anyway to begin with. Um, and so, you know, my first world, I, I made a world of my own and it was kind of like, I guess I'll just do kind of Forgotten Lands because that's stuff that's implied in the book. Um, and now like our second arc of that campaign is in a completely custom world and I've done weird stuff with it. And, and like, that's just easier for me personally. Um, I know it's not for everybody, but like, it's more fun for me to have, like, start out with some stuff like, uh, you know, in our current campaign with that, uh, dwarves are not like mountain dwelling, um, you know, mining types. They're like Mad Max style pirates out in the plains. They, you know, they walk into a bar, they see one with like giant orange Liberty spikes. Um, and he's sitting in the bar, you know, with like this kind of like pirate outfit on. Um, they ran into the Fermingi family, which are gnomes in this big city that are like essentially the gnome, the gnome mafia, like just stuff like that. And the, immediately they start kind of being like, well, why is, why is it like that? I don't really have an answer for it at for, up front. Like, I don't know. Like, but then, you know, a lot of times if they're like, oh, I wonder if blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's cooler than what I thought of. So in my head, I'm like, okay, that's the real reason now. So I, I like that of like imply settings because not only will like, yeah, other people don't want my crappy setting to play sci-fi, especially. I think sci-fi even more than fantasy mm-hmm. needs like, you want to make it your own because it's such a, I think it's more of a blanket genre than fantasy, honestly. Um, and then, you know, so, so people don't want my crappy setting to begin with. And then two, I also don't want to have too much of it in there too, because players can contribute to setting as well. And so that's one of the things I love about Dungeon World is they like, it's not for everybody, I guess, but I love the shared world building. That was like a permanently mind altering game for me is to like leave some blanks, have some people fill it in. But even if you don't, even if, you know, putting people in the spot like that makes them nervous, you can still have them contribute to your setting just by listening on like, oh, I wonder if mm-hmm. like, cause they'll just say that out loud, right? Cause the more they're a fan of the thing, then like, they have their own kind of fan theories. And it's like, okay, well the cool fan theories, like take the cool fan theories and make them like the real thing and they'll discover it later. And then it'll feel awesome. They're like, I knew it. I knew it the whole time. <laughs> yep. so, oh, yeah. no, I, I definitely use some of those mechanics in, in the games I play. I'll, you, you know, we'll, we'll be doing something and, oh, this is a, the, the mercenary, the mercenary band you left, you know, it's one of the, the sub captains from, from that. And, and I'll point to another player and what's his name. And, you, you know, and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. definitely, you, you know, include the players into things. So mm-hmm. we're talking about settings. Uh, one last thing on Novas and Nebulae before I leave. You, mm-hmm. you do put a reference in there about hacking, about how, you know, you mm-hmm. could easily use it for like a fantasy game, which yeah. you could have. And and to be honest, I think somebody could pick up this rule set and, and just make it their own fantasy setting. Do you, mm-hmm. Have you had any desire to to kind of reformat it for a fantasy and put it out as a separate yeah. document? I actually have thought about that. I'm, I'm kind of tossing around a few ideas in my head. I'm um, I've thought about making a fantasy setting. I think there's some things that would need to change a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so I'm trying to, you know, determine how much I want to keep or change um, the 2d six was especially because 
I figured if I'm going to get anybody to play sci-fi and you don't do 2d6, all the traveler people are going to be like, no, <laughs> it's 2d6 or nothing. Um, but you know, to, uh, I guess just to go back to, uh, what Spike has been talking about, the swinginess can sometimes be more fun in fantasy than uh-huh. in sci-fi, I think. Um, so, you know, I could adapt it to be a D20. So I'm trying to figure out what, what will and won't stay the same since there's so little, um, I think the first, the, the magic system would need to be tweaked just slightly. Um, and I think instead of, uh, mainly instead of the table being like more of the four style powers, I'd, I'd actually rather have like something more like from maze rats where you generate it uh-huh. via the words. Um, uh-huh. that was really cool. And I turned, when I worked that out, like, okay, you've got a physical effect and then, a, um, an ethereal subject or so it's like spirit. What's the physical effect? Like quake. Okay. What does spirit quake mean? Players always end up coming with something cool because they're hearing a cool series of words and they immediately have an impression. It's never what I think it's going to be. It always ends up being cool. So, uh, you know, something like that, you, maybe you have this, this power, maybe it doesn't go every day. So I'm, I'm working on that kind of in my head. Um, and I'm kind of sidetracking by, um, working on another kind of setting, um, for, for this. And I think it's the big thing is like the, uh, I think I'm going to make a new game that has all of the rules in it. Cause I'm going to tweak them slightly with new tables. So I'm kind of sidetracking through like a weird kind of fantasy. Um, so I'll give you kind of the inside scoop as I'm working on it and see what you think. But um, this is kind of to help me get back into fantasy and I'm taking like an intermediate step. So I'm, I'm working on a setting that is like um, uh, kind of pseudo Victorian, pseudo uh, steampunk, almost like electric bastion land, but in space. Um, so basically if you imagine like there's all these different stations, whether they're on asteroids or they're free, for, uh, free floating in space, like imagine like a big Victorian bird cage, either wrought iron or like brass, you know, distressed brass or whatever, but you have panes of glass in between and these different like terrariums exist in space and you've got them uh, connected by zeppelins that like they're like spacefaring zeppelins. Um, But each one of them kind of to take the Troika thing, each one of them is different. So, you know, maybe you go to one and it's like, oh man, look at that. They've even got artificial weather, you know, they've got all the sky and then you get to the edge of the world and you realize that it's not actually that at all. It's just, there's, wallpaper essentially that was plastered to the side and it's starting to peel at the edges. Um, you know, and you've got all these various guilds vying for different things. So I'm, I'm working on that kind of like a weird, weird, then that's like trending towards fantasy. And I think that'll help me like, okay, what is, what needs to change when this isn't sci-fi anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and then hopefully have something that's more fantasy based. That's um, a great setting. I, yeah, I'd, I'd pick that up and play in that in a heartbeat. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. You say people don't want to play in your settings, but, you know, that's a great setting. And then, you know, your, your second published p- product effectively is a setting, right? Yeah. The, the Reef Runners. Yeah, I'm trying to force myself to do that instead of because I'm a person who can get really distracted by uh, game systems. Uh-huh. And I'm going to make a real hot take here because as much as I love focusing on rules and rule systems, at least at my table, I found it just doesn't even matter at all. Like, I know people debate this back and forth. They're like, oh, rule systems matter. And you got to have the rules reinforce and I, I just don't find that that's true at all. I think that they can help, but the big thing is the only thing that matters is the shared understanding that you build at your table. And you can play any game anyway, because most people aren't playing them right anyway, or right, you know, rules is written anyway. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my, my take on that is like the rule system doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like you, the shared understanding. You, you're a hundred percent right. And coming in, you, you know, be, being pretty new to the hobby, it's awesome that you've picked up on that this early. So don't don't let anybody dissuade you from that because you're right. It's 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 the d- dynamic of your part of your player group that matters, and the GM's a player. It, it's a dynamic of your group that matters. 
Yeah. And, and and a good group can play any set of rules and have a great time. And the best set of rules, if you don't have a good group dynamic, aren't going to matter. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I felt like, yeah, it, it matters more when you're doing like solo, like on subclass act, the system matters a little bit more uh, just because it's just you and the rules. But yeah, I mean, it's really just that, that shared understanding. I think the biggest thing that blew my mind about that lately was I listened to the uh, mud and blood podcast episode where they talked to uh, Sean McCoy, uh, who works at, I think Tuesday night games and they made mothership, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, it's kind of good that I misread the mothership rules before, because I might not have made Novus Nebula if I didn't misread it, thinking that like you roll 60, 10 for stuff all the time. And it's supposed to just generating your stats. Cause I bounced off of that hard. I was like, I'm never going to roll 60, 10 for anything. Um, turns out it's just percentile after that. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, he was talking about how, you know, stealth is a super important thing for mothership and that's why there's no rule for it, which I was like, what? That's crazy. And everybody always talks about, you know, um, you know, on YouTube, like, oh, this mechanic, you need to have the mechanic reinforce what you want your game to be about. And he was like, no, I, I don't want a mechanic for stealth because I want you to talk about it. Like, I want you to say with a person, okay, like, yeah, you can hide under this. You're going to have um, a 30% chance. There's also a duct in front of you. You could try to sneak through the air vents you know, and, but your chances, you know, your chances of being discovered might be this, but you'll be in a better, you know, just making a diverging path, a trade-off. Um, but making a rule for it actually in that case just brushes by it too quickly. Okay. I'm going to hide. Okay. Roll th- under 30. Well, that's boring. In fact, stealth is so important that it can't be condensed into one rule. And I thought that was a really cool take. So it's always that, that shared understanding. Well, it goes back to that, you know, the, the, you hear on a lot of podcasts and you, people talking while players are playing off their character sheet. If they don't see it on the character sheet, they don't think they can do it. So the less, and it goes back to why the advantage of minimalist games, the less on the character sheet, the more they have to think outside the box. Yeah. And they have to come up with things. I think it's, um, you know, it's always a trade-off because, you know, I'm in very improv heavy. I'm just because that's who I am in general. Like I I play jazz and all kinds of other music and stuff. And so improving is just like a thing that I do. I did a little bit of improv in college. Um, but it doesn't work for everybody. And some people feel really put on the spot. So that's why, you know, you can always, um, you know, have some ideas that that's kind of what I, I tried to get a balance with uh, Nova's and Nebula with the backgrounds and the careers, um, because they don't mechanically really mean much of anything except for that. If it applies in some way, like if you can convince me that like, Hey, my background is a bureaucrat helps me in the scenario. Cool. You get advantage for that or a hindrance like, Oh, you're, you have a toxic personality okay, well, if you're going to try to negotiate, you're going to be at a disadvantage for that. Um, it, people still will look down at the sheet, but it only tells them enough to give them an idea. So, um, and what ended up working out really well is random character generation. Um, and I kind of have had this debate with, with people on different discords. One of them, you know, they were asking, I think on 5e, like, how do I speed up combat? And I said, get rid of feats. And I think what they heard was get rid of class features, everything, which, which is weird. Those are two words for different things, but I was like, no, no, no. They're like, well, I need, I need to have all the stuff to make my character separate. And I was like, but you can also play like, you can also play games with like very few stats and stuff. And actually your character is going to be more unique because, you know, like for instance, uh, now the example I keep using is, um, I'm sure I stole it from somewhere, is that, uh, you know, realistically Aragorn is not really uh, a ranger. He is really a fighter. And so is Boromir, um, but they're not. And really, so is, you know, Gimli, unless you're playing BX and then he's a dwarf, but <laughs> you know, they're all fighters, but they're super different. Like um, they're, they're different because things about their characters and the way that they play are different. So like they wanted the kind of the niche protection and it's fine. Like that stuff is cool. Like I've got Xanathar's and Tasha's, but like you don't need that to make your character unique. You just need to make your character unique. And so what I really liked was making the, 
you roll randomly and you can always pick them if you want, but by default, you roll randomly for your, your background, your career, which is like a failed career, the idea of what you did before you're adventuring and then your hindrances. And there can be weird combinations. And it turns out those were the most fun. So I think well, one time my wife got, that she was a bureaucrat. Um, her hindrance was that she was naive and she had a mechanic skill. And that seemed like a really weird combination. And she decided basically that like, she, you know, had this cushy job, but there was just so much of the world out there. She really just wanted to get out there. Um, so she like, you maybe she tinkers in her spare time and it's like, you know, I can do this. I can be a kid. I can go out there and do it. And, and, you know, she's, so that kind of naivety really played into the character of what, you know, what she was doing. And that was more interesting than like picking from a list of like a grocery list of like, oh, you're this exact archetype. Cause I don't, I don't think anybody would have chosen a, a former bureaucrat now mechanic but it was cool because it happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, because they could look da- she could look down her seat sheet and say, what is it again? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm a bureaucrat. Oh, I wonder if this, and that's, that's like the effect I wanted is like, if they're not feeling like in the moment ready to, to improv something, they can still look at their character sheet and get inspiration, but it's not confining. Right. I think that's a great point. Um, just, yeah. So I don't know how much time we want to spend on reef runners, because you know but it's it's a neat setting it's um you, you know it gives folks a effectively an underwater setting although it's really they're in a dyson sphere right but, yeah and that one actually turned out uh, that one's interesting because i've I, like i have one version in my head and another one that i published so i kind of had two versions of that and i think it was because troika um i was under the influence of troika um <laughs> as it were. And it, that really ended up being more of like a Troika set of spheres, but I, I think you can actually play it more seriously um, mm-hmm. for sci-fi as well. Uh, if you just take out some of the silliness of it, uh, it, it actually started out, I ran a, um, a swords and wizardry one shot um, with some people and I wanted a different setting. So like the, the short of the short of reef runners is that um, yeah, it's kind of what if there was, you're in the solar system or galaxy, you can actually choose whichever scale you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if that whole area of space is one giant ocean? Um, and instead of having a, like a black hole or something in the middle, you have a white hole, which is the theoretical opposite. It, it spits out matter and energy. But what if there was like this big galactic reef that, you know, surrounded and caught a lot of the energy and material. And so everybody else is left, left living on the fringes and they have to go into these reefs to try to, to get, you know, various things that get collected. That's, you know, people use it for energy, things like that. But, you know, if most of the time people go in there, it's really dangerous. They don't come back out or they go crazy. Um, so what does that do? And so the more I kind of thought about that, that's kind of the, the idea. And um, I wanted it to always be a little weird because it was a fantasy game that we were playing for a Swords and Wizardry. Uh-huh. Um, and so it started out as like, okay, well, an extra plane. It's rumored anyways that this whole thing was created by there was a um, an extra plane. It's the tier from an extra planar, uh, an extra planar uh, entity that like, you know, the tier that created this white hole and that created this whole like ocean. And so you have by default, yeah, like the Dyson spheres and there's two kinds there's, um, well, some of them, some of them are Dyson spheres and some of them are like water-based. So like water-based creatures can live just like on these various bits of rock and whatever that are floating in, or also live in, you know, essentially water bubbles. Um, but then you have any land-based creatures are going to be living in these Dyson spheres that these big, some of them artificial, some of them have probably been there for thousands of years. I think we played um, where I'd had us in our one shot, we were in a derelict unit that had some sort of serial number. Um, that was like a storage facility. And of course we ran into gelatinous cubes. Cause I love, I 
love everything about gelatinous cubes and I always have gelatinous cubes. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, so there, so you have, you can have land creatures living in the middle of the Dyson sphere. So they empty the insides hollow and people live on the outside, um, on the outside of that. And then the more I did Troika, the more it, it had weird stuff in it. And I realized that like, there wasn't enough in there to like get people to download it. And so I added some weird quirky stuff to fit Troika because I was playing Troika at the time as well. Um, but I think you could ignore some of the weirder results or spin them. Uh, so like one of them, for instance, is the table for making creatures, which really didn't come across as zany, but really I just wanted to borrow something from Avatar, the last airbender, um, where, you know, you have like, you roll, if you're in a land-based area, then maybe you roll for, um, a, uh, you roll for a sea, sea creature name, and then a land creature name. So you might end up with like a, a, um, a lobster bear. Like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Or like, you know, the other, and then it goes the other way around if you're in the opposite environment. So you could have like a, a shrimp hawk or something like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> so, right. um, but yeah, I mean, you could make it a little bit more, um, I think you could make it a little bit more severe. Again, you just re replace the tables. Um, some of the tables there, the other one is for like generating locations, which is like, um, my like Fisher price version of the uh, what's it? The uh, Tome of adventure design. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, yeah, no, I think it's great. It's um, you, you know, and, and you could do this in a serious. So in a, obviously in a fantasy setting, this could be, you know, some of these things could be the result of mad wizards or, or, or you know, even insane gods. Right. But, mm -hmm. but it, it, some of these table results, even in a, a straight science fiction could be genetic manipulation, you know, yeah. genetic experiments go wrong. So, there's all, you know, I, I think it's fine. I, but, but yeah. I, I mean, I'm more of a gonzo player. Like I say, I'm a Yeah, me too. Player, I love the but... weird stuff. My players also just love like the weird off the wall stuff. Um, cause I think we play more of a, we play less serious in general, more of a beer and pretzels mm -hmm. style game. Um, as it were, but yeah, yeah, it, we have our serious moments, but, and, and I got our, you know, feedback from our last campaign. That's kind of what they wanted. Like, yeah, I like the weird stuff. Actually, interestingly, um, because what we'd had is we had had our uh, fifth edition uh, arc uh, end, um, and then one of the characters had died at the very end. And then um, I was like, we're going to play a Troika one shot, and then we'll decide what you guys want to do. If you want to make new characters, you want to continue. They actually all wanted to continue the old characters. Had a multiverse. They're in a new new world, a whole new thing, a whole new shebang. But one of the some of the feedback I got after Troika I, was not what I expected. So this is still D and D, but um, one of them was. One of the characters said, uh, I would really like, or one of the players said, I'd really like, you know, maybe not science. He actually used to, he said science fantasy, I think. He's like, not actually, not necessarily like lasers or like lightsabers or anything like that, but like, you know, not necessarily spaceships, but maybe more of like that. I was like, yeah, some like science fantasy. You want some some of that in there. Um, and the other one was the uh, the chaotic nature of the uh, um, initiative from, from Troika. Um, so we've experimented with that. But yeah, just that the science fantasy is something that like really glommed onto. And I think, so we like the serious moments. They happen. Right. Um, there's some dark moments. Like they just um, ran into like some cult members um, who like chased them down. And there was this blood tree. They end up destroying these cult members um, and had to use like, like ring some of the blood from them onto the tree, which reacted. And they realized, okay, we dig, dig a little, or they dug a little deeper and saw the roots and it was interacting. So they like kind of like wine pressed some of these clerics essentially onto the roots, the roots separated and they were able to find um, the, like the lost uh, temple of the mind from the elves, which they have, haven't been seen in hundreds of years, which they don't fully know because they're new to the world. But, you know, so the, there was a dark moment there, but then like, you know, at the end of the day, it's so weird. Like they spawned in spawning vats, like in green spawning vats at the beginning of this world and like a big tree. So 
it's all it's all weird i love the gonzo <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today. I, I know we ate up your lunch hour. I, oh, I appreciate good. you're doing that. Um, but, you yeah. know, these are great games. I look for and, you know, I'm like I say, I really enjoy your podcast and I look forward to to what you have coming in the future. Thanks. Yeah. The uh, you know, I think, you know, I think it'll be a surprise everybody else who listens. But yeah, you know what the next uh, one shot will be now since everybody mm-hmm. died. Um, uh, and I'll probably respond to this in my show, too. But, you know. Um, I guess that spoiled it for anybody who's listening for a season, but uh, you know, that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I thought about like having um, some of the character, or, like one of the characters they had found, like wake up and go get the others. And I was like, but I was like, I think I've, I've kind of explored that part. I'm ready to, to move on um, to something new. And I'm really excited about, um, uh, I guess I could say it on here because it'll be still be fun for anybody who listens um, to my show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about index card RPG in general because I've been paying attention to a lot of Runehammer stuff. Um, support him on on Patreon as well. Uh-huh. Uh, he's been talking about old school essentials a bunch lately. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about index card, and I hadn't even paid attention to that. I had the settings until you mentioned the Ghost Mountain. Um, super cool because the idea of like the Weird West setting is just really cool to me, and I'm really excited about that. And I'm actually I'm actually more excited now that I didn't have the fantasy characters transitioning into that because that would have felt even weirder. I was right. trying to figure out how on earth to explain an elf um, <laughs> in that setting. And I had kind of an idea, but um, it would be cool to like start me with that. I think I'm going to do um, a couple more bonus episodes. I had some feedback from an, uh, another listener as well that about talking about the systems and kind of the differences with solo playing. Cause I find that um, some of my normal opinions on games at a table don't always transfer to solo playing. Um, and then I'll probably do a couple one shots of various things and then see kind of, <laughs> I have no idea where the next big arc will land, but somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm look, definitely looking forward to that. The, the interesting about ghost mountain is, well, you can play it light, it, it but it kind of falls in that where there's a really dark undertone too, yeah. to, to that setting. If you want to explore that, you don't have to explore it obviously, but, it, but if somebody wants to, you, you know, bet, between, you know, playing, doing that playing cards, the devil and all that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of interesting things in there. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's a big thing because you got to have like, for me, I like the contrast. Um, I I forget who I heard saying this, but, uh, and maybe it was Trevor Duvall from on me, myself and die. Someone's asking questions about various rules and, or, or, or maybe it was, um, or actually maybe it was, um, Hanker and Farinell. Maybe it was a rune hammer. It was kind of talking about like, somebody was like, Oh dude, would you have like play grimdark? It's what, what? No grimdark. That's not a thing. Like that's, that's a mood from sometimes like you can't just have it. Like it's always, it's always dark all the time. And, you know, some people like that, but you got to have the, the, the other elements too. So I actually, I think the dark moments hit better in stuff where it's in general, the, the setting is lighter uh-huh. um, and more gonzo. And then all of a sudden you have a really dark moment. It hits really hard. And then I love when you reveal moments like that, because you've got this lighter setting, all of a sudden something really serious happens. And it's kind of like, everybody stops talking for like 10 seconds. And it's really uncomfortable, which is in, in a good way where you're just like, whoa, like you're floored that like this thing happened and it's never out of the blue. Like you don't want to surprise people too bad or go too dark. But if you have, if you don't have the lighter, happier elements of something, you can't really appreciate the dark elements. If, if something is just dark all the time, everything sucks for everybody continually. Then it's like, it's not, it's not fun when like, you know, somebody rolls a, a miss, you know, a spell mishap and they're horribly misfigured or something or, you know, whatever it is, you got to have that like surprise you. Right. Oh, oh yeah. And that's how some of the best horror movies are too. They'll mm-hmm. balance that a little bit of humor with, you know, the horror effects. So it's, yeah. You know, cause, cause if it's like you say, if it's dark the whole time, it's, you know, that it just becomes oppressive. 
right? Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like watching a Simon Pegg movie. You're, you're going, you go. yep. thinking like, oh, this is gonna be really funny, and it is. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, wham! Something real serious happens. I just woke my dog up. <laughs> something real serious happens, and yep. like, it hits you way harder. Uh, I think that way. Um, yep, I agree. Coen Brothers are kind of the same, same kind of idea. Yep. Um, you know, uh, and I love the Coen Brothers. But yeah, you have something you're like, whoa, that. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. It, so here we're at the end of the interview. Is there anything you want, you want to plug? I'll put links in the show notes, of course, to your podcast and, you know, your drive-through page, itch page. Yeah. Uh, I'll just, I'd love to plug just the, um, like, uh, other people, basically. I'd love mm-hmm. to, like, Go for check it. out the inter- uh, the influences page in the back of uh, Reef Runners because there's some good games on there where they get a lot of attention, a couple that don't get enough attention. Um, even though I haven't gotten to run it, I think Star Dogs is actually a super mm-hmm. cool rule system and the tables are amazing those are great tables um i've actually gotten feedback from from the creator of that on my game which was fun um yeah but go go check out those influences and but the biggest thing is just like just i think for now to um affinity stuff is 50 percent off you don't need that you can use whatever but just like find something if it sounds fun like get in the diy space like i'm not a professional anything but to do with games um but like just you know, take my game, hack it, whatever. It's creative commons, like do whatever you want with it. That'd be awesome. And then just like send me links so I can see cool stuff that people have made, but um, like make your own tables, like start just by making your tables for a game like mine or somebody else's. Um, Then like, you know, oh, I have some cool ideas. Like, cool. You throw into a word document, like whatever, just like throw it on somewhere and just like start hacking on that stuff and put it out so other people can see it. Cause that's, that's super fun. Um, and then, yeah, like go buy all of those games on the back of my uh, influence table. Cause they, uh, those are some great games and they deserve the, they deserve the money on that. Um, yeah. And then lastly, like just try some solo stuff is, is fun. Um, I was kind of surprised. I, I, another, I think I mentioned me myself and die, um, tale, a tale of the manticore is really good too. Um, there's also a YouTube channel, uh, geek gamers. It's pretty popular for, for solo role-playing and she plays a whole bunch of stuff, like all kinds of stuff, any game system you can think about. She's probably soloed. Um, and I'm going to kind of do with my, upcoming uh, bonus episodes, something kind of similar, um, where I play through, you know, different, different systems, especially some crunchier ones that don't normally play at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that Pathfinder 2E, um, <laughs> one shot, but yeah, just try some, try some solo play. Um, it's pretty fun. It's, uh, it's weird at first, but I think there's all kinds of cool approaches, but just pick up something like mythic or, or Ray Otis's Oracle is super good too. Um, start rolling up some stuff and yeah, just go with it. It's super fun. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you just said there. So um, thank you so much. Like I said, we'll put links in the show notes to all that stuff. And um, yeah, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Really Yeah, thanks it. for having me on. I love blabbing on and on about stuff. And, uh, no <laughs> That's worries. what I do best. <laughs> okay, well, take care. Thanks, you too. Temples and Tombs. So Arlen Walker, a Live from Pelham's Wasteland podcast and YouTube channel, ran Temples and Tombs for my son and myself We had a lot of fun with it. Temples and Tombs is designed to run pulp games. Like, basically, it's designed to do the Indiana Jones movies, National Treasure movies, things like that. And it's set up to be set in the 30s. I don't have a copy of the book. I didn't back the Kickstarter. It uses the Mutant Year Zero engine, and it's published by Gaunt Knight Games. I don't know that it's a Gaunt Knight game product as much as they published it. I, I don't again I haven't done the research to be able to answer that. I, I've just played in it, so I'm giving you my impressions from playing in the game. 
but it it does a pretty good job of emulating that genre. You, it's a dice pool system. It uses all d6s. You have four stats. Each stat has some skills, and basically you take however many dice, you know, whatever your stat number is, whatever your skill number is, add those together. That's how many dice you roll. You might have a specialized object that adds to those dice. You might have, you know, other things that add or subtract from the number of dice you roll. Instead of hit points, you have conditions, and those conditions may add or subtract from the number of dice you have. But it, it works pretty good. When you're rolling, you're trying to get sixes. If you don't roll six, then it, it, say you roll seven dice and you don't roll six, then you fail the test. If you roll more than one, normally one six is all you need to succeed. If you roll more than one six, you can save the others for your next test, which is good. You'll carry them forward. So if you roll three sixes, you'll save two. And the next time you have to do a die roll, after you roll whatever the dice pull is, you can re-roll those two dice to try to get additional sixes. So it works pretty good. It also has a push-your-luck mechanic where if you don't get any sixes, you can push your luck, which lets you roll another die to try to get a six. If you roll one, then you automatically fail and get a condition. If you have already pushed your luck, say you've pushed your luck three times without rolling a one, then that fourth time you try to push your luck, well, each time you push your luck, you, you add a die to the number of dice you roll. So the fourth time you push your luck, you're rolling four dice to try to get a six. So as you push your luck, you get you know, a better and better chance. Once you hit five, then you automatically succeed and it resets. But again, if you're all one on one of those dice, those luck dice, then you automatically fail. But it, like I say, the, the push your luck mechanic and be able to carry forward additional successes really made it feel right when we were playing the game. The skills and the attributes are appropriately named. It has all the standard kind of careers you would think. Uh, we just played a short session. My son created a thief kind of character, and I created a journalist. And, and we ended up going into a, to a tomb. It, it wasn't actually, well, it was kind of Egyptian tomb, but it must have been some kind of offshoot cult because it was a mix of Egyptian and like Roman stylings and architecture and, and whatnot. So this is probably some weird cult. And we faced different challenges. We had there were the standard, you know, pressure plates with blow darts kind of thing that we had to figure out how to get across. My character Sings Rider was a cane and he was able to use that when my son got stuck and he was stepping on a pressure plate and he knew if he lifted his foot it would shoot the darts out. I was able to use my walking stick, my cane to to press down on that plate so he could get off it, you know, safely. So that worked out well. We got there, got this. Um, it, was, it was a necklace we were trying to recover. We got that, get, got back across through all the traps. Um, with which, to be honest, getting sixes is hard. You know, we were typically rolling six or seven dice each time. And there were more than once we failed the test uh, by not getting a six. But when we finally got out of, of this temple, this tomb and there's the of course what are your bad guys in pulp movies they're nazis so there's a group of nazis with with, with the evil leader that of course we know you know basically kind of like a belloc type kind of character standing there and um 
you know, you say, ah, oh, good job recovering the, the necklace now, hand it over. So my character tried, he has a kind of like a persuasion skill, and he tried to, to fast talk him and, and tell him, well, there's a, surely you know the rumor that only the, the person that physically carries the, the amulet out can possess it. Otherwise, there's a horrible curse. So you probably don't want to take that. Well, I didn't think on my feet quite fast enough because I passed the roll. So he believed that, but that just resulted in him pulling out a big knife to chop off the hand of whoever carried it out, right? Maybe I should have thought of a better plan, but, you know, it worked out okay. So he, as he advanced with the knife, getting ready to cut off my son's character's hand, my son's character had a signature weapon of a grappling hook. And so he said, hold, hold on, and he went to reach to pull out the necklace to hand to him. And he whips out the grappling hook instead. And what he tried to do was throw it to hook onto the, one of the submachine guns of the Nazis and swing it towards the other, not, the other guards and, you know, hopefully catching in the trigger guard so it would start shooting the other Nazis. And Arlen rightly said, well, that's going to take more than one success to do. And my son only rolled one success, which was fine. So he still hooked it, but the, the submachine gun pointed the air and fired into the air. So it wasn't a, the full success we wanted. But during that chaos, my character then pulled, he's a journalist, he doesn't have any weapons, but he had a camera, his, one, his starting equipment. So we figured that had a big flash. So he pulls out, it whips out his camera, sets off the flash, which blinds all the Nazis because I did a successful roll. And then we hightailed it out of there and escaped. All in all, I think it, you know, it was just a quick session. You know, we probably spent, you know, almost as, not, not almost as much time because we talked through making the characters and we didn't have, obviously I didn't, we'd have the books ahead of time or anything. So it, we took, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes to make characters. And then we played for probably an hour or so. But all in all, we had a lot of fun. And, you know, maybe we'll pick up with those characters again in the future. We'll see. But I would definitely... We'll, we'll see when it comes out. Arlen said that there were some... The book needed another revision. What he had is a beta copy of the rules. And he said they were doing another pass before the final copy. So... You know, I'm not going to hold any of that against this rule set because it's obviously still in the beta stage. But I'll definitely be take a look at it when it finally comes out because I think it does a good job. I need to look around and see what other systems are out there for pulp games. I know Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents, has a love affair with White Wolf games. And White Wolf or maybe Onyx Path... Are, are they the ones that publish them now? Anyway, I, I guess they have a, one of their games that does it now. So, or maybe it just came out or maybe got Kickstarter recently. I'm not sure. And then he has something for 5e that does it as well. So I'll have to look at those options to see if any of those do it better. But all in all, had a great time playing. You know, Arlen, if you ever, you ever get a chance to play in one of Arlen's games, check it out. Arlen always is fun to either play in one of his games or to have him play in one of your games. So that's all I have for Temples and Tombs. Unboxing time. 
I have here a box from D6 Publishers Resource out of Iowa. So let's see what it is. I'm not really sure off the top of my head. Although it sounds like it's probably a gaming thing if the company's called D6, eh? So let's see if we can get this box open and um, go from there. I know I haven't been doing a ton of unboxings lately. Hopefully, they'll slow down. Ooh, excellent. Hopefully, they'll slow down as I slow down my buying of things. This is a card game that I kickstarted a while back. It is from a company. Um, L-Y-C-K, maybe? Looks like. I don't know. Their, their logo is a, is a die. And it's either L-C-K or L-Y-C-K. But I believe it's a Swedish company. Um, it's the Phantom Card Game. Yes, the Phantom from the, you know, the old the old newspapers, uh, serialized, syndicated strip. Of course, we had the Billy Zane movie, and of course, the Phantom was part of the best cartoon show ever made. Well, the best. Well, I won't. Maybe best doesn't fit in there. Buddy, who was part of a very famous cartoon show. You guys all remember that cartoon, right? Anyhow, it, so I, that gave me a chance to look. It was made by Michael or Mikkel Like, L-Y-K-E. I'm sorry, I can't even read. L-Y-C-K. And yes, it, it came from Stockholm, Sweden. Anyhow, it's a game for one, it's a card game for one to two players, includes a couple player decks, and has three different adventures. So I am looking forward to giving this a try and playing some adventures as the Phantom. Hopefully, I will report back to you and let you know how it goes. But that, my friends, is the unboxing for this episode. Big Apple Sewer Samurai. This is a Savage Worlds-powered game that lets you replicate Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. At least I assume that's the intent. I haven't actually read the book. This is another game that Arlen Walker ran that I was able to play in. And it's a game he's been running on every other Friday for a while now. And the regular players are Che Webster of Roleplay Rescue, Carl Rodriguez of The Geomologist Presents, I'm not sure if, I, I think there may be another player that plays now and then, I'm not sure. But this, I was supposed to be in the group from the start, but this is the first time I've been able to play. The character I'm playing is Edgar Frog. Arlen had created him, him already, so I didn't have to do character creation. I did get to pick four advances or four new edges for him to catch him up to where all the other characters were. So I... If I had been there from the beginning, I would have given him quick, so we gave him quick. Quick, basically, in Savage Worlds, you draw cards for initiative, and in quick, you can't start with a lower than a six. I also picked combat reflexes, which allow you a plus two when you're trying to save versus being shaken or stunned, or to recover from being shaken or stunned. I raised my spirit by one die size, which makes it easier to recover from being shaken. And he had martial artists already, so we upgraded that to martial warrior, which made him a better hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Basically increased the die size for the damage die 
and gives him, a, I think, a plus two to hit. So the adventure these guys have been doing involves a combination of traditional ninja and these ninja robots. And during the session I played in, we had, there were some pieces left of the ro- ninja robots from their last battle with the ninja robots. Apparently, the real ninjas kind of kicked their butts. They, they, were, they did okay against the ninja robots. And I guess a ninja master showed up, kind of like Shredder. They kind of kicked their butts, too. So anyhow, I told the guys that now that I'm here, everything would be fine, and I'd show them how to handle these kind of opponents. But we, we picked up these broken pieces, brought them back in their little ninja, in, or in our little ninja clan. One of the things there is, is a DJ who happens to be pretty tech savvy. So he was able to take the robot pieces and create a helmet that could tune into their frequencies that they use to communicate. Che Webster's character, which is a, a a rat, an uplifted rat, and then of course Carl's playing a mutated alligator. But the Che Webster had a contact with a with a human conspiracy theorist, who told him that you know these robot ninja robots are tied into a coming alien invasion. We had to stop them, and he gave him a tracker, kind of like the the tracker in Aliens movies that he could use to track these robots down. So eventually we, we track down to where they're creating some of the, I don't know if this is the only place they create them, but a place where they're, they were definitely producing ninja robots. In fact, there was a machine that was kicking them out. So we dropped down to fight them. I told the other guys, hey, you take care of these ninja robots. I'll take out the machine. Well, I flubbed the initial stealth roll, so everybody knew I was there. But luckily that just distracted all the robots, so the other two were able to drop down and do good attacks. So that worked out well. And then I kept flubbing the rolls to turn the machine off. Um, in fact, I, I flubbed one. So, you know, when, when I flubbed the initial roll, Arlen said, you know, the he narrated how the ninja robots turned at turned to look at me and the, with their red eyes glowing. And, and out loud, I said something about laser vision. And he goes, oh, no, they don't have laser vision that you know of. And when I rolled the you know, when I flubbed the roll to turn the machine off, I rolled a one, and on the wild die, which all characters get to roll an extra dice called the wild die, all characters and named villains. Anyway, point being, I flubbed the roll, so the next one that popped out was a prototype that did have, you know, a cannon in its head. And um, so the ninja robots are fighting us, and the regular robots aren't able to do much. And I have a, my character, Edgar Frog, has a pretty high... Uh, parry rating, so he was able to, you know, not be hit by the regular robots, but the one with the cannon opened up and blasted him, and of course he, in Savage Worlds, dice explode, and he did like 20 points of damage, which would have been shaken in like three wounds, which would have knocked me out, and so I used, I think I had three bennies, so I used a benny to, you know, roll to soak damage, and I failed that, so I had to re-roll, use a benny to re-roll that roll, and I ended up soaking one damage, so I ended up being shaken with two points of da- damage, or two wounds. The next turn, because I had taken all the edges to make it easier to get rid of the shaken status, I was able to easily get rid of that. And then, because Edgar Frog's a frog, he leaped over the other ninjas to attack the one with the cannon's head. They had free attacks on me, attacks opportunity, but because of my high parry, they weren't able to hit. So, so I ended up taking out the one with the 
the cannon its head. And then we fought, and we ended up taking out the other ninjas. And But the machine's still there, slowly kicking out ninja robots. So I went and turned it off, and I kept flubbing the rolls, flubbing the rolls, and it you know, kept kicking out ninja robots, and eventually we, we got it turned off, and, but, but, it, you know, we, we, all of us are rolling pretty bad today, actually, roll 20 was rolling pretty bad today, um, I, I, I've never rolled as bad with real dice as I have, uh, consistently bad with real dice as I have in roll, roll 20, but to be fair, I have rolled consistently bad with real dice, so, you know, I can't say that I would have rolled better with real dice. All in all, it was fun. I look forward to it. Hopefully here in a couple weeks we'll play another session. But it it was fun. It definitely invoked the feeling of, you, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. Um, not the system feeling, but the feeling like the cartoons and all that kind of stuff. So, so it was a lot of fun. Um, I think Savage Worlds is a great system. I, I've always liked Savage Worlds. I, I think Savage Worlds is definitely one of the most versatile systems out there. I don't think it it's particularly good at gritty games. You can do it, but it's, it's better for cinematic, sim, I can't talk, cinematic games because of the exploding dice and all. I think it, it better, you know, mimics cinematic and heroic stories, but, but I really like Savage Worlds. I've used to play tons, tons of different genres and, and it's definitely one of the most versatile systems out there, hands down. If I had to pick a universal system, Savage Worlds, it would be high up there. And as much as I, as I like ICRPG, I don't know, I'd have to do some real thinking if I was going to pick Savage Worlds over ICRPG. Or, I mean, ICRPG over Savage Worlds. They're, they're both really good systems. I think Savage Worlds is probably a bit more versatile than ICRPG is. Oh, oh that, that, I don't know. But, but anyway, as far as this particular game and what we did with it, it was great. And I really like Savage Worlds. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to try to compare Savage Worlds and ICRPG. They, they do things differently, and ICRPG is more seat of your pants. Um, and Savage Worlds definitely has more rules and, you know, more systems bolted on than what you have in ICRPG. So it's really not fair to compare them, I don't think. But both are good universal systems you can run any genre with. Um, but if I, you know, you put a gun to my head and I had to pick one or the other, I very well might pick Savage Worlds over ICRPG. Um, anyhow, I had a lot of fun, and, and and I would definitely recommend this if you don't want to try to play a Palladium game with the Palladium system. An American Tale, June 4th, 2004. The Killdozer Story. I, I've included a couple links in the show notes. One is to a YouTube video that gives you a three minute, 27 second synopsis. It basically tells you everything you need to know here. And with the played by NRG's instruments of destruction in the background, or you can go to Netflix and watch their documentary tread, which is based on this situation. It is a classic, you know, good old boys come up against somebody that's not going to take their crap and, or, I fought the law and the law won. This came back into my con or back into my visibility recently because over on the Metal World Discord, the creator of that game released a, a small supplement adventure built around the Killdozer story. And in fact, watch for future Killdozer stuff because that rule set's being refined 
and I hope to have the creator on for an interview in the near future. But today we're not going to talk about Metal World, although I do like that system. What I want to talk about is Marvin Heimeyer. And I'm simplifying it to say it's just a man against the good old boy system. But it, it's definitely an interesting story where, where a man felt everything else was taken from him and he had no choice but to take his heavy-duty bulldozer and upgrade it with armor to a small tank and demolish a small Colorado town. And, and this was, what, 2004, so it was, you know, 15 years ago. You know, this is recent. Um, it, it's interesting. So he was there, and he couldn't get some permits in the city, and he was getting cut off his small business. And, and watch the video or go to Wikipedia. You can read it. But, I mean, definitely it looks like the city did, you know, some of the people in the city did wrong him, the city officials, and, and he tried to fight it. And the and the... The documentary does go into that pretty well, but, you know, basically being effectively having his business run out of town, he took kind of extreme response to this, right? His response to take his D-355 Alpha killdozer or bulldozer and upgrade it to what he called an MK tank in what popular culture now is called the killdozer. And it was an impressive machine. You know, this big heavy bulldozer and it had, you know, compo homemade composite armor put on it, you know, over an inch thick with, you know, steel sheet and quick, quick creek concrete mix. Um, it, it proved yeah, impervious to not only small arms fire, but the explosives the sheriff's department and the city police used to try to get in. Um, you know, he had some weapons mounted that, that he did fire. And, and if you watch that tread video, or I'm sorry, the Tread documentary on Netflix, it does show that. that that's the best way to learn the story is watch that video, that documentary probably. It's, I think it's an hour, might be two hours. But it, it's, I mean, he, but, you know, he had video cameras to monitor and everything, but, but he de decided he was going to take out those that wronged him. Now, he very could easily, very, he very easily could have killed a bunch of innocent people and caused a lot of damage. And I am not putting him up as an American hero here. But, but I think this is, when you push somebody too far, you never know where they're going to go. And in this case, you know, and he had decided he was, this was the last thing he was going to do. He, when, he, when he lowered that armored cage, when he lowered the armor on the bulldozer, he didn't have any way to get out. So he had, you know, consigned himself to his fate. And, and like I say, he did take his own life at the end. But it, <laughs> it's one of those things, you, you, you know... Nobody expected an armored bulldozer to, to pop out and start destroying the town, you, you, you know. And, and when you look at the, the areas he went after, he went after the people he felt wronged. You know, he went after the concrete plant. He went after the, you, you know, the local city government. Um, it's a really interesting story where somebody that everybody said was a nice guy, a likable guy, just you know, seemingly snapped. Although if you'd been around and followed the story, like locals, you know, they knew he was angry, knew he was, you know, felt wronged. So this was a foreseeable thing probably, but you know, the extent that he went to, to get his revenge, 
you know, is, you know, pr- pretty interesting. Um, and, and so I don't, I, I, you know, some people will put Marvin up as a hero. Like I say, I don't necessarily do that, but I do think this is a cautionary tale. And, and I, and I also think it, you know, shows the dangers of things like your, your nepotism and your good old boy networks that you have in small towns. Um, because in a bigger town or if he had been listened to and, um, you know, hadn't been blocked by the town at every, th- every turn when he was trying to get redressed for his business, I, I don't think this would have happened. But yeah, go if, if you don't want to watch the documentary and you're not familiar with this, at least go watch the YouTube video. It's three minutes set to really good music that you can get the basic story. But yeah, I, th- I think on June 4th, we need to look back and remember what can happen if we push somebody too far. And again, I'm not saying he's the hero here, but it, you know, just be aware of that. So, w- so when you're pushing your neighbors too far, you know, you, you never know what somebody's going to do when they snap. So anyhow, I, since um, this little mini adventure for Metal World got put out with Killdozer, and since it is June 4th today, I, I figured I would, would mention Marvin Heimeyer and, and his Killdozer. Okay, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate James joining me for that wonderful interview. I appreciate all you listeners for tuning in and listening. Go check out some of those shows and some of those games that James is talking about. As far as... Other credits, I want to thank Ray Otis for the art, TJ Drennan for the music. And if you want to leave me a call, if you want to respond to anything you've heard today or propose something new, you can leave me a message on Anchor. You can email me at nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. You can attach an audio file to that, and I'll play it on the air and make you famous. You can look me up on Audio Dungeon Discord. And I will look forward to talking to you soon. Take care, folks. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, the butcher is a dustman, and your moil is by a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away.
slashing you be? I think he just snapped.